Amos chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen, no more to rise, is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, The city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour, with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth, he who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. Well, good morning again. And one of the great things about this flyover that I'm enjoying is it kind of forces us into places we normally wouldn't go, like the prophet Amos, stuck, stuck in there somewhere, buried in the prophets. Of course, their message is pointed to Israel oftentimes, but there's a lot there for us to gain as well. If you remember, we uh, went through Jonah last week, and uh, maybe it was maybe it's a little hard to swallow that whale of a tail, or is it a tail of a whale? Uh, whatever it is, I we I think most of you would agree with me as we we take that as a historically accurate account of what took place, what God did with the prophet Jonah as he refused God in his commission to go to Nineveh, which Nineveh being the capital city of Assyria, enemy nation. God told him to preach the gospel, essentially, to Nineveh. And then God pursued Jonah, didn't he? And eventually he did bring that message to Nineveh, and they repented. God extended saving mercy toward them. You know, that part about the fish, the whale, whatever it was, we love that part, but it's really not the primary message of Jonah. It rather has to do with God's mercy, and I think it's a reminder to us as believers in God to check our hearts and our attitudes as we look at Jonah. Um, God disciplined Jonah in this story. Remember all those things that he appointed? There was a strong wind, there was a sea creature. There was a plant, then there was a worm to kill the plant, and then there was a scorching east wind, all appointed by God as a trial to the little prophet, that he would reach him, that God would reach his heart. We don't know how Jonah responded, but we can respond to the same message. What's in our heart? I think we, we looked at two things quickly last week. The fear of the Lord. Jonah is not a good example of the fear of the Lord. On the other hand, we have a man like Job, who, what did God say about him? Blameless and upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. I wonder what God would say about me. 
Without the fear of the Lord, we cannot gain wisdom. We will walk in blindness and generally live a pathetic life as slaves to sin. We may not even know it. But submission to God, continuing to humbly seek Him is key as we desire to fear the Lord. And then secondly, we too can have conflicted value systems, something like Jonah. Maybe not so obvious a ways, but in our thoughts and attitudes, pride and misaligned justice and resentment can sneak in. Maybe we harbor pride, misaligned justice, and resentment. We can be like the South Pole. It's, it's very clean. There's very few germs, no pollution, no allergens floating around, but it's very, very cold, almost impossible to live there. Legalistic, no flexibility, no mercy, no compassion. But that's not God. That's not the way we want to live. That's not a godly method of living. So those things Jonah can help us with. Well, we move on then from Jonah. And hopefully you found Amos. If you'll open to the book of Amos. And as always, in the flyover, we'll kind of be skipping through. And I'll, I'll throw out verses. And you can zero in on those and read those quickly as we go through in order to track, hopefully, what uh, Amos has to say to us and to Israel, but let's ask the Lord to bless this time. Father, thank you for the book of Amos. I don't, I haven't spent much time there. I don't know, maybe some of, some of my friends have, but we ask God that your message, your inspired message from the prophet Amos would reach us today, that it would be engaging as we interact with the historical side of it, the structural side of what he has to say, what you have to say as we think about Israel and their apostasy, and then let, let a message reach us too in our time and our need. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So with, with Amos, we, we give him a date of about 760. We're, we're trying to, I should say, I'm trying to follow the prophets chronologically. Remember, we're back in the divided kingdom time. We already looked at that, but we're going back and we're hitting the prophets as they come up during the kingdom of Israel and of Judah. The dating for Amos is based upon his writing where he says that Uzziah was king of Judah in the south. Remember, good king Uzziah, Isaiah mentions him several times, and Jeroboam, this was Jeroboam the second, not the first guy, but down the line a few years was king of Israel in the north. And this was the time that Amos saw the vision from the Lord. Dating, in this case, is pretty easy because we know when these guys reigned. So it's a little bit of an estimate as far as actual year, but some, somewhere during the 760, if you remembered, this is only a couple decades since Jonah was on the scene. And only a few decades later is when north... Assyria would come down and take over Israel and, and remove them only less than 40 years from, from this date. Keep that in mind. Um, Amos is talking about that event quite a bit. Unlike many of the prophets who came through what's called maybe the school of the prophets, started by Samuel way back. Amos didn't come through the school of the prophets. He wasn't that sort of person. What was he? He was a shepherd. He was 
probably tending someone else's sheep as a hired hand. In addition, he was also a gardener. At least he he tended fig trees of some kind. Amos was from a town called Tekoa in the south, 12 miles south of Jerusalem, pretty close to Bethlehem. This was in Judah, by the way, not Israel. And all this really authenticates Amos's ministry. His calling must have been from the Lord. Why else would he have left a comfortable, peaceful job to take an unpopular message to a hostile territory outside of his homeland? But that's what he did. Now look at this, look at this, uh, the structure or the outline of Amos. Nine chapters in whole. And um, first are eight judgments or eight judgment speeches to eight different nations, chapters 1 and 2. And then there's three judgment speeches now to Israel, chapter 3, 4, and half of 5. And then after that comes two woe oracles, and they kind of lend strength or come off of those speeches. That's all the way through chapter 6. The last three chapters contain six visions that Amos saw having to do with Israel. So hopefully that makes sense. Kind of a, I thought that was kind of a neat way to look at Amos. What is the purpose of the book? Well, from the historical perspective, Amos, God called him to take a message of judgment to the northern kingdom. You might say a warning to Israel. Remember, we have Israel in the north, 10 tribes, two tribes in the south called Judah. Israel had become wealthy and prosperous during these days. And of course, they were not seeking God. We, we covered that. They had zero good kings in the, the whole of their existence. But they did excel in moral corruption, in calf worship, and other forms of Canaanite idolatry that they took on, injustice, abuse of power, and abuse of the poor, and other things. But this message is directed to them, and it's from the Lord. So, Look at, look at the first chapter as we now get into, the, into Amos and fly over. We, we learn a little bit about him. And then it's, he says, the Lord speaks. The Lord speaks. And then he launches into these eight judgment oracles or speeches. Now, the wording here, if you were to read the original, the things that he's saying seem to imply that these were acts of rebellion against God, against one in authority. The, the things he says about these eight nations, the judgment that he gives them, or I should say the, the things he accuses them of, each nation rebelled against God's authority, at least in principle, in their abuse, their injustice, their murders, you, you name it. So look at those quickly. First you have Damascus. Now Damascus was the capital city, that's in verse 3 of the Arameans northeast of Israel. They're being judged for what must have been a brutal attack on Gilead, a part of Israel, city on the eastern side of the Jordan. Then you have Philistia. Philistia is in verse 6 and following. And that was, of course, there on the southern, kind of western side of Israel by the Mediterranean. Four of the five major cities are mentioned there in his judgment. Apparently, they had deported many Israelites, sold them to Edom. God would judge them by fire. And we know that in the decades to come, Assyria completely conquered Philistia. In verse 9, Tyre is mentioned. 
they also carried off Israelites and sold them to the Edomites. And even worse, they it says here, they broke a treaty of peace with someone. While doing this, fire and destruction would be their fate. Edom is mentioned. They were they were already have been denounced up to this point. You see them in verse 11. But they were involved in slave trading, apparently with some of the Israelites. And there was also, it says, a break in brotherhood, violence and unbridled anger they're accused of. Edom we know, was destroyed entirely by the time the prophet Malachi came on the scene, perhaps by Babylon or some some other nation. We saw Obadiah, too. Remember him? He brought a message to Edom of warning of this judgment. You have Ammon in verse 13 of chapter 1. In an attempt to enlarge their borders, they pushed northward into Gilead, part of Israel, on, on the eastern side, and They were violent and deadly, including with pregnant women, apparently. You can see that. And so the Lord would burn their capital, Rabbah, with fire, and he would take their important people into exile. It's likely that Ammon was conquered by Babylon a few decades later. Moab is in verse 1 of chapter 2. We're going through these eight speeches of judgment toward the nations. I don't quite get this one, but apparently they burned a dead Edomite's king's bones. As uh, That would have been an act of extreme hostility toward the enemy. At least they were enemies now. This was their way of making enemies. But perhaps this characterized who Moab was. And God didn't couldn't stand that. And you can see there, there's a judgment for them. They would have fire and death was their fate as well. Moab also felt Babylon in the 6th century. Well, now the prophet's message moves a little closer to home. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. Judah is mentioned. Judah, it says here, has broken their covenant with God. So they're in a special covenant relationship with God, and that's been broken. The prophet says they have rejected the law and the statutes of the Lord for them. Fire would come on Jerusalem as well. And then suddenly... An eighth nation is brought up, Israel. Now, the the northern kingdom, Israel, they were anticipating the day of the Lord. To them, it meant getting rid of all enemies. It meant advancement and prosperity. That's what they were thinking. And we'll see that here a little bit more. But the prophet spoke against all those First of all, these eight, these seven nations, or six really, who have messed with Israel, who have, who have abused them, the surrounding people groups. You can, you can imagine Israel nodding and even cheering, you know, yeah, yeah, destroy them, good. But it's like the prophet's funneling down, getting closer and closer to home. He, he hits Judah, Israel's neighbor to the south. This was number seven, by the way, a number of finality. That was it, right? That completes the list. That lines right up with what we're thinking as Israel is listening to this. He'll clear the way. God will make us powerful. or Whatever it is, the day of the Lord. And then number eight pops up. You know, I think there's an underlying mentality there in the nation of Israel. They thought they were good. They had an in with God. They were God's chosen people after all. And there was an underlying problem with Israel 
There was wickedness. There was pride galore. So the first seven nations are mentioned as real prophecy, yes, but I think more than that even, they were also an introductory device to this speech, the message that was toward Israel. They are the real target of Amos and his judgment. Now, why the judgment? Why the judgment from God? Verse 6 of chapter 2, and then you then we'll see it more and more in the rest of the book, but verse 6, they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. The powers that be in Israel had perverted God's methods and replaced them with their own oppressive ones to bring prosperity into their own laps. And then you see God reminds them of some of his works for them, looking back, 9, 10, and 11. But they have ignored, they've even blasphemed God. God says, he uses a, an, a picture, he says, I've, I'm weighted down beneath them as a wagon is weighted down when filled with sheaves, verse 13. So their corruption, their idolatry, it's not gone unnoticed. And destruction is coming. The rest of the book is now expanding upon that theme, if you will, toward Israel. And that's where these three judgment speeches of prophecy come in next. The whole of chapter 3, I hope you're able to kind of follow along here. The whole of chapter 3 is speech 1. You are the ones I have chosen, God says to them. I freed you from slavery. I brought you out, verses 1 and 2. But your iniquities deserve punishment even more than the surrounding nations because they were his. They were in covenant with him. You can see that in verse 6. But before you get to verse 6, there's seven questions listed there that lead to the proclamation in verse 3, 4, 5, and 6. And these seven questions, remember, it seems Israel wasn't expecting judgment. They weren't expecting the day of the Lord to be a problem for them. They were immune to judgment. We can do what we want. It seems like apathy had set in, actually. You know, it's a little bit like that roadkill you see on the side of the highway. After a little bit, rigor mortis sets in. It doesn't take long. The muscles get constricted with stiffness. Rigor mortis has set in. Well, it's like this, I think, with Israel. Apathy has set in. They're stiff in their idolatry and their sins, and they're not even seeing the heart of God. But God is sending his servant, the shepherd prophet, Amos, one of the reasons he's sending him is an extension of mercy toward these people. Now, in verse 8, there you can see in chapter 3, I think we're in still. Um, I, I kind of wonder if Amos isn't bolstering his own confidence as he reminds them, the Lord has roared. This is his message, and you should be fearful. Take heed, you're out of line, Israel, and God does truly have a standard for you. So, Chapter 4 contains the second speech, the second judgment speech against these ten tribes of Israel. This one is prophecy, or at least starts out with the prophecy against the rich. Not because they were rich, but because of how they got rich. They were based on, it was based on extortion and perversity. In particular, look at verse 1. It's the wives of the rich men, or he calls them cows. I know some of you like cows, but this wasn't a pleasantry. The fleshly cravings of these women were met by exploiting the poor. Soon they would be carried off 
like meat, he says, like fish from the marketplace. And and verse 4 and 5, interestingly enough, God mocks their religion, their so-called sacrifices. God invented the sacrifice, if you will, when he when he set out how they should live back in, in the desert out of Egypt, but they weren't doing that. In verse 6, through the end of the speech, all the way through the end of chapter 4, uh, God testifies that he has disciplined them time and again, and yet in verse 10, look at that, it says, you have not returned to me. Therefore, verse 12, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. There, there's the warning. Okay, we're walking on through here. The third judgment speech is in chapter 5, the first 17 verses of chapter 5. You remember that message that Jonah brought to Nineveh? Forty days until destruction. That's what he said, right? Why let them know? Well, it was a warning, but it was also a window of mercy. And in this third utterance toward Israel in chapter 5, there's a window of mercy that shows up. Actually, it's a very obvious window. After lamenting Israel's fate in the first three verses, look at verse 4 of chapter 5. The Lord cries out and he says, seek me that you may live. Seek me that you may live. But notice then, and as Steve read this for us, not at Bethel. You know what that means? It means the house of God. Bethel means the house of God. But God's house was supposed to be in Jerusalem. Don't go to Bethel to seek me. And then don't go to Gilgal. Don't go to Beersheba. And look at verse 14. He expands on that. It's not those places, Israel. Instead, seek good and not evil that you may live. And thus, may the Lord God of Israel be with you as you have said. As you think he is with you. It's when you seek good and not evil. I think that verse there, 14, you could kind of say that's a central verse in the book. That's maybe a, a primary point of this book for Israel and for those of us who read it after them. God wasn't so much interested in their sacrifices, in their sacred sites, in any kind of religious ritual I think we can understand that. He wants our hearts, just like he wanted Israel's, our submission to his good way, pursuing God's moral high road, if you will, in their case, justice in the land, equity, fairness, proper standards, morality, whatever it was. And God cares about those things and he notices all of those things. You can see in verse 8 and 9, we're, we're in chapter five still right verses eight and nine they had an appointment with the king of the universe and it was possible that he would extend mercy but it wasn't guaranteed the latter part of verse 15 remember again remember the Ninevites their response to Jonah's message was who knows God may turn and relent he may spare us that was their response in repentance. You can only hope that Israel would do the same thing, would have that same response. Well, the remainder of chapter 5 is the first of two oracles. The first of the two oracles to Israel. Now, what's an oracle? It's 
in simple terms anyway, an utterance of God. In this case, it's infallible. It's inspired. It's in the in the scripture. And in the, it's also an oracle of woe in this case. So you could call it a dirge or a lament, um, something that we consider what is said. Consider what is being said. So beginning in verse 18, this oracle of woe gives proper definition now to the day of the Lord. Listen to this, Israel. This is what it is going to be. They had, Remember, they had been expecting a day of deliverance from enemies or God giving them authority over the earth, perhaps. But no, it will be better defined as a funeral for you because of your injustice and your empty sacrifices, no heart of obedience. So he says only 10% will be left in the land, if, if that. Chapter 6, then, is the second oracle, oracle of woe toward Israel. He's addressing here complacent leadership. They're comfortable. They're prosperous by worldly methods. And you can see there in, in chapter 6, they're described kind of as living it up, if you will. There's complacency, there's idolatry, there's self-pleasure. They want to be first, and then God says, you want to be first? Okay, then I've reserved a place for you right at the front of the line of exiles. Well, why is all this happening? And, and we haven't looked at all of, all of them. We've, we're kind of hitting a, hitting a few points. You've seen it before, and you see it again in verse 12. 6, 12. He uses a... Uh, an extreme picture there. It's ludicrous that a horse would run on a cliff or that a good farmer would try to plow rocks. Well, it's equally bizarre and ludicrous that you would turn justice into poison and righteousness into wormwood. Well, if this isn't enough for Israel, there's one more section here, and that's these six visions that Amos sees. These are visions of the future, at least as I understand it, verses or chapters 7, 8, and 9, the latter part of the book. Remember, a vision, again, as I, I'm not an expert, but as I understand it, a vision is different from a dream in that it's something you would see while you're awake. I don't know, perhaps Amos was watering his sheep or pruning his fig tree, and suddenly God gives him a message on the big screen. There it is. First, you have a vision of locusts destroying and a vision of fire destroying. Notice both of those, Amos asked God for mercy and God said he wouldn't send them. He relents. And then you, the, the third vision is in verse 7 of 7. It's a vision of a plumb line. I don't know if you know what that is. It's basically a builder's tool to get a structure standing straight. And the Lord is about to use the sword and desolation to plumb up, to correct, to straighten up his people, Israel. God is merciful, but he will not let sin advance forever. And that stands true. Now we, we see the fourth vision in chapter 8. And this one is a basket of ripe fruit. God is comparing Israel to this ripe fruit. He says, your time is short. You don't have much longer before you're going to rot, if you will. Judgment's on the way. And then chapter 9 is the fifth and the sixth version. The fifth one there is pretty literal. The Lord stands beside the altar and gives commands to smite, to break, 
to slay and to destroy. And then the final vision, verse 11 through the end of the chapter. This is chapter 9. And keep an eye out for this in the prophets. There is often a message of hope. There's a message of blessing. It's not God's desire to destroy. He wants restoration. He wants blessing and right relationship with people. I think that's God's desire. But sin and rebellion cannot be overlooked. So you can study the words there of of restoration at the end of the book. We won't spend much time there, but you see David's name, King David's name will be lifted up again, rebuilt. It says the land will produce prolifically and the people will be restored to it. It says they'll never be removed from it. So in my opinion, this is yet future for the most part, although maybe it's underway. Now, if we were doing a more thorough study of Amos, we might spend time with several different lessons here, and they're, they're already in your minds probably. You can think of them. But we remember, of course, that the message of Amos as a whole is not directed to us. It's not directly applicable to us because Israel had certain doom predicted as a consequence of certain sins in a certain relationship with their God. But you know what? Some of these sins are common to man, common to humanity. And I want to ask you, get mine, I want to ask you, what is true worship of God? What is true worship of God? Israel stands as an example to us, but a bad one. What is true worship of God? We can get it wrong too. Now, take a moment. I want you to define it first. We're, we're, We're nearing the end here. Take 30 seconds and ask your neighbor, which means you'll have to ask each other probably in some cases, what true worship is. Now, you don't have to define the whole thing and wax long. Just what is a piece? What is one part of true worship? Okay, take a minute. Okay, you got it figured out. The problem with that is I don't know what you said, which is not a problem, except that I want to know. I would have loved to heard everything you you said, and I probably don't need to add anything to it. But let me add the things I was thinking about this week, just three points that might help us as we start down that path. That's a big question, isn't it? That takes a little while to, to work out and to define. And we've we, we try to do that during our, our daily lives and weeks. We, we, we need to continue to work on it because we get pressed into a corner and, and we forget. But a lot of these things we know and we remind ourselves of. But true worship, to begin with, has to be God-focused. You know, if you're, if you're in Japan, 
and I've not been there, maybe some of you have, but if you're there, you can visit a shrine, a place of worship to a pantheon of gods, whatever they, whoever they are. You, you, if you're a tourist, you can literally walk toward the shrine and practice worship. If you like, I wouldn't recommend it, but um, it's a possibility. Now, if you're going to do that, you, you do things like this. You don't walk down the middle of the path toward the shrine. You walk on the side. The middle is reserved for deity. You're not deity. You wash your hands in a symbolically, in a symbolic way, and, and there's a five-step process to do that. You put a little money in the box, respectfully, don't throw it in, and then you make a bow, and depending upon the shrine, that you, you make two more bows, two claps, one more bow, and with your hands joined in front of you, you make a little prayer to the God. Now, that's ritualistic, isn't it? There's certain reasons for that. Rituals can be okay from our perspective in that scenario in Japan. It's also pagan, of course. But listen to what Jesus says when he was speaking to the woman at the well out of John chapter 4. He says, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That's the basis of worship, not rituals. Not methods. That's because in his conversation there with that woman at the well, he was he was opposing that to the proper place, the proper mountain for worship or temple or the correct ritual. So instead of a sacred place or a sacred method, it should be a sacred person. That's the basis of it in our Understanding Jesus in, in the spiritual realm, through relationship, that's where worship is toward God. Worship is God-focused. There's a lot that you could say there, right? You could expand that greatly. Well, having said that, we don't do whatever we want either. True worship is from a heart of obedience. In other words, bowing the knee to God. Now, you might argue that we are all worshipers of something. Eugene Peterson said, Worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. It's a decision. Did you hear that? It's a choice, an act that develops feelings for God, not so much a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. True worship is obedience. At the baseline, it's aligning ourselves with God's methods, with his plan, with his morals. It's not ours, but it's taking his high road. Romans 12.1, we memorize that if you're, if you're with the, the church program. And it says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper, what? Worship. To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's true and proper worship. So if, if we're a living sacrifice, and that, that touches every part of our life then, it's not just the sacrificial moment at the altar once a week. It's not just coming to church once a week. It's a lifestyle. Worship is a lifestyle. 
1 Corinthians, for example, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. That's what we're talking about. And I think this is expressed, or at least in one sense, is expressed in our priorities. I built, I, I used to work for a builder and we built pole barns and we built a pole barn for a guy and some course of conversation, he expressed to me that he, he, had, he loved race cars and he spent a lot of time and a lot of money on race cars. And then he said, well, everybody has priorities. And he was right. Everybody has priorities. And he knew what his was. I read an article recently about a, a builder, not the one that I worked for, but somebody else, uh, somebody, a company that built tiny homes this this company happens to be in Colorado and a situation where you could order a tiny home from them on wheels according to your specifications. And the business recently filed bankruptcy while owing nearly 200 customers a total of $6 million. The money was paid in good faith to the, the company as deposits and full payments for their tiny home that would be built and delivered to them. Allegedly, there was large cash withdrawals by the business owner, hundreds of thousands spent on his own pleasure vehicles, many more thousands spent on luxury travel, real estate, eating, personal items, while no one received their homes. Unfortunately, this is a company with a Christian name as a nonprofit organization. Also, an example. There's the priorities. Is that true worship in business? Is that true worship in lifestyle? That's where it shows up. Now, we may not be swindling anyone out of hundreds of thousands of dollars under a Christian name. I hope not. But is your lifestyle, is my lifestyle that of true worship? Sometimes it's the secret areas. They're not in an article anywhere. Do you have a lifestyle of worship in the secret parts of life? Sometimes it is the not-so-secret areas. That was Israel. They were just wrong. And we can be wrong too. So, true worship is God-focused. Psalm 29 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory that's due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. True worship is a heart of obedience. David, Psalm 119, he says, I am resolved to obey your statutes to the very end. True worship is lifestyle. As a living sacrifice, we can worship in every part of our lives. Let's pray together and the elders will be up here if there's a prayer, prayer need after the service. Father, thank you for the reminder <clears throat> here of where Israel was at. It seems extreme and Maybe it's even boring at this case. We're so far removed and yet, in a sense, we're just like them. We can easily get off track and we can easily worship ourselves, if you will. Thank you, God, for your mercy that's extended. Thank you for your saving mercy for us as believers in Jesus and your Holy Spirit that doesn't let us run at least not very far. Thank you for discipline. And God, I pray that you'd help us to be introspective and, and serious about our worship, that we would 
continue to grow in what it means to properly worship you in every area of our life. Thank you for these, my friends and family, and we look forward to um, growing together in love as we worship together at times and as we live our lives out in this world. I pray that you would use us even in our weakness, even in our failings at times to show the gospel, to live as a light. Just ask it now in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm.